and welcome to Say More on That, a podcast for academics to talk about their policy-relevant research. Today, I'm delighted to be hosting Dr. Max Margulies, who's the Director of Research and Assistant Professor at the Modern War Institute at West Point. He also serves as the Course Director for the Thesis and Capstone Programs in West Point's Defense and Strategic Studies Program, which includes a required course on research design. Prior to joining MWI, he was a faculty member in West Point's Department of Social Sciences, where he taught classes on international affairs and served as the executive director of the Rupert H. Johnson Grand Strategy Program. In addition to his primary interests in military personnel policies, innovation, and effectiveness, he also studies and writes broadly on civil-military relations, strategy, and conflict. His writing has appeared in War on the Rocks, Lawfare, and the Washington Post's Monkey Cage. He holds a PhD in political science from the University of Pennsylvania, an MA in political science from Columbia University, and a BA in political science from McGill. A quick note before we dive in. The views that Max expresses today are personal and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, the U.S. Military Academy, or any other department or agency of the U.S. government. Max, welcome and thank you for being here today. Hillary, thank you so much. I am so flattered and appreciative of this opportunity. Thanks. Well, let's get to know you a little bit more. What book are you reading right now? Okay, so I am a big believer, at least for me, that uh, reading fiction really helps me decompress at the end of the day. So I have been breezing through a lot of science fiction books the last few weeks. I just finished the fifth book of the Red Rising series, uh, which means that I am now eagerly awaiting the final installment of three different sci-fi fantasy series, <laughs> which is a little frustrating, um, but there, I know it'll be worth the wait once I get there. Uh, it's been a while since my sci-fi fangirl days, um, but it seems like a really good thing to get back into uh, mid-pandemic. <laughs> so... What is one thing that you are just unreasonably particular about? So I like to think that I'm pretty forgiving and non-confrontational about most things uh, and different habits. So people might not know this because I don't often try to make a big deal about it because I don't like to get into arguments about it. But I do feel very strongly that the category of millennial, at least as currently defined as a generational category uh, in terms of its typical year ranges, is a completely incoherent category. If I'm going to take this opportunity to give my brief little rant about it. Please. Um, <laughs> so if one of the, the key definitions of that category is having grown up with kind of a similar levels of access and familiarity with the internet and technology as the defining features of what makes somebody born between 1981 and 1996 is the, the typical age range, a millennial. People born in the early 80s have nothing in common in terms of the, the level of familiarity with the internet and technology growing up compared to people born in the mid 90s. And the argument that they do and that their childhood were shaped by that in similar ways is really contingent on a certain class experience. So if you even take me, my brother, my wife, we were all born in the uh, between 88 and 90. For us and our friends, vastly different experiences, even in that middle category, based on whether you were you had a more of an upper middle class upbringing or a working class upbringing. So 
glad to get that off my chest. I hope people will kind of take that to heart whenever they hear about whatever they think about describing all millennials a certain way. I hate to say it, but that's really spoken like a true millennial, Max. <laughs> I know. I went back and forth about other things that I I could list for this, but but this was the one I felt more pa- most passionately about. All right. And then the last question, how do you take your coffee? This is easy for me. I start most mornings with a large French press. I drink it black and the darker roast, the better. That sounds very nice. So let's dive a little bit more into some of your fascinating research. You have this awesome new project underway, looking at the effect of conscription on the use of military force. Can you tell us just in brief, what do you find? Okay, so I guess just to back up, I can start a little bit with what motivated my research project before I get into the specific findings that I focused on, just because there's so many different aspects of the relationship between conscription and recruitment and conflict behaviors that, that we could focus on. So the the one that really, mo- or what really motivated for me for, for this question was a lot of the debates that I've been hearing for a really long time in the U.S. about whether the United States would be better off better off with a draft army or with the current volunteer force. A lot of times, especially around Memorial Day or Veterans Day or anniversaries of D-Day, Pearl Harbor, and so on, you get this spattering of op-eds that appear that bemoan the state of the, the volunteer force and the fact that so few people serve in the military today. And you and often these kind of paint in very rosy pictures what uh, what our army was like under uh, the selective service systems uh, after World War II and the early Cold War. And a lot of times this argument focuses on a particular idea that the draft army would act as a break on foreign adventurism, and that we wouldn't use military force abroad so often if we had a draft instead of volunteers. This argument always really rubbed me the wrong way because it hinges on this assumption that conscription distributes the costs of a draft broadly across society. And we know from American history that it doesn't. So according to one commonly referenced source, only 10% of draft eligible men were actually drafted during the Vietnam War. And more than half legally avoided the draft. So I started looking into the studies that have been out there about how drafts affect the probability of initiating conflict. And none of these studies really found an effect of conscription on conflict initiation. But they also didn't take into consideration this variation in how widely implemented drafts were. So I wanted to set out to test this hypothesis that if a draft is going to restrain foreign policy adventurism at all, it's only going to do so as the draft gets more broadly implemented, or for the best proxy I could use as you get larger conscript armies. So to my surprise, because I've always been skeptical that even in those conditions, it might work, uh, the models that I ran for an effect on militarized interstate disputes that escalated to the use of force, but not war, I did find a statistically significant effect that large conscript armies tended to initiate force less. But that effect was observable. You could only see that difference when they were really large, like more than 3% of the population. And that is a very small 
proportion of country years in the time period that I examined. Under 5% of, of cases reached that size of a conscript army. When you pull out those outliers or zoom, up, zoom in on more historically normal military sizes, there's really no evidence that conscription leads to restraint for any definition of militarized interstate disputes. Um, in fact, the only other statistically significant difference that I found was at the other end of the spectrum for that really small volunteer armies were more restrained than small conscript armies. That's such fascinating findings. Um, and it does fly in the face of so much of this received wisdom. A lot of the, the arguments in favor of reinstating the draft in the U.S. suggest that having more, you know, quote, skin in the game will reduce the likelihood that the U.S. will go to war. And the proponents of this argument have public opinion data to back up uh, the relationship between conscription and a reduction in support for conflict initiation. But as you note in your work, the declaration and cessation of wars or militarized international disputes isn't driven entirely by public opinion. So what do you think these types of arguments miss about the drivers of conflict? This is a really important question because the it is the main pushback I get when I remind people that there's no empirical support that drafts have a restraining effect. They, there are, there's a quite a few public opinion surveys that find that people, general publics do um, support war less fervently when they think that there's going to be a draft. So I mentioned in this article a few reasons why I think that we shouldn't be so ready to assume that public opinion is going to be the driving factor. I think we have one set of literature that argues that public opinion just doesn't matter either because the public doesn't hold leaders accountable very well or because elite opinion matters more than public opinion or that public opinion matters. And I think it probably does at least on the margins, but that costs just don't matter as much as we think. Um, you know, I, I tend to think that elites are pretty good at shaping public preferences and building support for war. Lots of other people have shown that people are willing to tolerate pretty high costs if they approve of what you're using the military for. And I think we can see this even in American history, just looking at the Vietnam War, where uh, pretty early on, more Americans agreed than disagreed that sending troops was a mistake, but the war still went on. Um, and that was with a, a draft army. It went on for a long time. Uh, so ultimately, I think that we just often forget about how easy it can be for leaders to gear up populations for war and convince them that something is in the national interest. Such a fascinating point. Now, in the project that we're discussing today, you're looking at conflict over a couple of centuries. And while I'm sympathetic to arguments that there are some immutable characteristics of war, it strikes me that the ways in which we fight wars or militarized international disputes have changed dramatically over the course of several centuries. I'm curious how you think your findings about conscription interact with the changing nature or technologies of warfare. It's another great question. Uh, it's a tough one for me, and I'll caveat my answer by noting that I just that so far I haven't really found any effects for the different time periods that I've looked at, but. I'm actually kind of with you that I'm a little surprised by that, and I would definitely encourage people to keep looking for uh, for these kind of differences and periods of of war where costs might be relayed differently. 
I do think that it's hard to imagine that technological advances that further remove even the possibility of human cost from war could make it easier. Um, I think that there's there might be a difference between the public thinking in the case of a draft, for example, oh, it probably won't affect me and being able to kind of hand wave the risks of a draft. Um, I think there's a difference between that and leaders through the use of remotely piloted vehicles being able to say, hey, I can take out these bad guys without even having to risk any of my own people. That seems like a pretty important qualitative difference. Um, I don't think that will necessarily cut it for all uses of force. And at least for the foreseeable future, I tend to side with Stephen Biddle in terms of the, the idea that the, the nature of war, at least for seizing and holding territory has been pretty constant over the last century and is likely to continue. But I do think that pretty with pretty high levels of technological investment, that can be a pretty big, we might see a pretty big di uh, difference in the medium term future. Moving to some more of the, the policy implications of your work. In this project, you introduce a measure of the degree of the size of conscript armies, and you discuss uh, how the size of conscript armies relative to the size of the population may theoretically matter for civilians' support uh, for the, the use of war and ultimately uh, the engagement of conflict. I'm curious what applications that you think this measure uh, has to understanding what states are conflict prone and what kind of underlies the relationships that you hypothesize. Right. So, so the, the measure that I used was from the, uh, the Correlates of War's National Military Capabilities data set. I, I used their data on size of militaries and total population to use to calculate a military participation rate for every country year in the data set. And I think that this, this highlights some of the endogeneity problems in terms of thinking about why conscription might not act as much of a restraint as people would think. Um, we need to think about what are the circumstances in which countries are going to recruit lots of people into their militaries, because that can be a, a pretty difficult thing to sustain. It's going to be countries that already experience um, countries or during time periods where there's already very threatening environments or in societies that are highly militarized and really prize military culture and achievement. And these are the kinds of countries that are going to be more likely to initiate conflicts or militarized disputes anyway. Uh, so I think that it's, it might be a problem from a causal inference perspective, uh, but in terms of policy, it's, I think, a, a very large underlying factor to that's impossible to separate from prolonged, the prolonged use of conscription. Um, I also think that uh, it, this is something that I've put much less thought to, but it might be worth thinking about how the other kinds of circumstances, maybe economic or, uh, or social, that might lead people to want to recruit lots of people into their army. So I'm thinking here about some of the literature on civil war and social movements about youth bulges. If you have a, a lot of unemployed young men, putting them into the military might seem like a great way to stop them from doing other things that might threaten your regime. So I think that might be a, an interesting dynamic worth exploring in future research for especially in developing countries. That's a fascinating point. And I love how it ties domestic characteristics to international relations, which was 
always my favorite part of uh, IR classes. That was exactly what got me into this question. I, I kind of started as a more classic strategy guy and then got much more interested in the domestic implications of military policies. Yeah, the uh, the butter always struck me as much more interesting than the guns and the guns and butter formulation. Um, so our, our final question. Your findings suggest that the distribution of the cost of war doesn't necessarily drive states' decisions to, to initiate a conflict. If this is the case, what should this change about how we assess the risk of militarized disputes between states? Okay, so I would like to just caveat or better scope my argument to say that I think I, I really just want to make a claim that military recruitment is not an effective way to raise the cost of war, at least for a large enough portion of the population to really make a, a difference for conflict behavior. I'm actually pretty sympathetic to arguments by people like Sarah Kreps and Rosella Zelensky who think that war financing could do it. Although I do think that you might need to make a really strong case uh, or that leaders might need to make a really strong case for how war financing is going to have that effect. If my hunch is right, I think that normative arguments and leader narratives to justify why we're going to war, especially to justify why people might have to pay the costs or what those costs will or won't be are going to play a really powerful war for explaining role for explaining support for conflict. I think we could see that through you know, contemporary American national security and what the, the narrative about the global war on terror has done for you know, perpetuating conflict over two decades. In terms of this idea about normative forces, I know that um, Lindsey Kahn, Jessica Blankshane, and Douglas Kreiner have a paper under review that I cite now uh, that argues that normative reasons, they're also trying to test some of these recruitment arguments. And I know that they have some evidence in favor of uh, normative approaches to thinking about recruitment. So what kinds of soldiers do we think it's appropriate to fight wars with might have a factor. I'm trying to work, get started on a paper right now with a, a colleague that also looks at this with respect to why we seem to be able to use special forces so often for, mm. for different conflicts versus other kinds of soldiers. So I'm really kind of optimistic about this increasingly popular research agenda I'm seeing about uh, normative factors relating to recruitment. I'm sure uh, everyone listening is excited to see more of your work on, on special forces and how they've become our sort of go-to tool in addition to this work on the effect of conscription on the use of military force. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we really appreciate it. So this is a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my research and I am really looking forward to the future guests you have on the podcast. Thanks so much.